Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. If you can find a way to get paid for what you're going to do when nobody tells you what to do, you're doing good. And today's guest not only enjoys his job, but has made many contributions to the field of accessibility. In addition to writing JAWS scripts for Level Access, a firm that develops access solutions for other companies, Doug Lee also freely shares many scripts and tools he has developed to improve access to commonly used programs. We'll talk with Doug about his life and about some of the tools he's created that he shares with others. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip contains some very practical advice from Doug Lee. If you have difficulty spelling, one of the things I use speech synthesizer dictionaries for is to put it in the wrong way on purpose. So I like to spell dimension with a T, which is wrong. I'll, I'll write a, a dictionary entry and this is dimension, then I'll change it to D-I-M-E-N-T-E-O-N or something that will be pronounced really badly. So whenever I write the word wrong, it'll sound really wrong. And that helps me fix my own ideas of how to spell words. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Guide Dogs for the Blind, working to help individuals who are blind or visually impaired move through the world safely through partnerships with trained guide dogs. More information is at guidedogs.com. And by... NaviLens, a four-color QR code designed to be located and read from up to 60 feet away without the need to focus on it. Now, using augmented reality, NaviLens 360 Vision locates the NaviLens codes in a 3D space available for iPhone and soon for Android. More at navilens.com. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Doug and learning about his role at Level Access. Hello, my name is Doug Lee. I am probably best known as a JAWS scripter, although I have also written scripts slash add-ons for NVDA. They call them add-ons there. And I have been doing scripting for 20 years, but I've been a programmer for approximately, let's see, 30 years because I started right after I got out of college. Most of our listeners have visual impairments. Do you? I do. I am totally blind. I have prosthetic eyes. And sometimes I tell people that they don't tell me what they see. (laughs) (laughs) I assume you got into scripting initially to solve some of your own problems. Well, you would have thought so. Um, In this case, what happened is I went to a job fair and I got introduced to somebody that wasn't on my list of people. And she said she wanted a trainer. And I said, I wanted to be a JAWS scripter. And she said, well, we really wanted a trainer. And I thought, I'm going to learn how to do a JAWS script fast enough enough that I'll be able to be a JAWS scripter. Within the first week of working at that company, which is a version of the company I'm at now, uh, they had to have me script something internal. And I did it in a week. And they started sending me to job sites after that. (laughs) And that's how it happened. And you mentioned the company that you're at now. Can you tell people what that is and what their overall mission is? Well, right now it's Level Access. It was Bartimaeus Group back in 2000, and then it became SSB Bart Group, and then 
level access. And as an overarching answer, what we do is improve accessibility uh, for people with disabilities, which isn't just blindness. Uh, what I do is actually a small part of that. And I've been known to make the joke that part of my job is to talk myself out of one. Uh, but that's because our first and primary focus is to make the applications accessible without having to have screen readers adapted, as I think most people would agree would be the best approach. I do have to do a lot of scripting, though, because things like call centers require extra work to make things efficient slash usable beyond being accessible. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, a how I fit into that goal. And I always stress that difference to people. Just because something is accessible, meaning you might be able to see everything on the screen of your program and get to every place, doesn't really mean it's functionally usable and efficient to use in a work environment where you need to be productive. Right. So as a quick example, in a call center, you may be able to read all 55 fields on the screen, but when somebody calls, you're going to need the person's name in the first five seconds. So you could actually say, hello, Mr. Whoever, um, how may I help you? Or even better, when the call is going out and they pick up the phone, you have better know what to say right away. So the fact that it's accessible by tab is not enough. You need something to read it very quickly. And you're one of the guys that makes that possible for people using screen readers. Yes. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the tools Doug Lee has developed to share with others and how he gained the skill set required to do that. Well, Doug, we talked a little bit in the introduction about how you came to program JAWS scripts, but tell us, when you were young, when did you first get interested in computers? 1984, I had a friend and sort of a mentor who kept saying, Doug, you should take a computer class, and he was a sighted guy. And I finally took a basic class, and it was like instantaneous attachment. I went so hard into that that my teacher basically came to me one day and said, you don't have to do all the extra credit assignments. I said, I know. <laughs> so I was doing all kinds of stuff that I wasn't. It got me a really good re reference letter a few years later from that teacher too, by the way. Uh, but that's how I got in. And, and I, I think I came in at a really good time because – when I first started, for the first couple of weeks, I did not have a screen reader, but there was an Apple uh, program, which some of the older folks might have heard of, called Text Talker, which became available to us within my first year of programming. And so it became possible very shortly after I started to take a class uh, to actually use a computer independently, and that was an amazing experience. Before you started using that tool, how did you interact with the computer? Did you have people typing in code for you and reading it back to you? I was typing, and I was having people read the screen and tell me what was there, tell me if I typed something wrong, you know, or usually you, you learn to feel when you type something wrong or might have typed. I'll say, you know, did I get an extra A in there? Is yes. there a space there? Mm -hmm. um, but I would have to say, you know, tell me the field I'm in. Tell me what else is on the screen. Tell me if something pops up unexpectedly, whatever. Uh, so yeah, I just had I had readers, either students or teachers, that were reading to me in the class. And my second semester, which was a Pascal course, there was no or second year, there was no screen reader for that. So that entire year, that was how I did everything. Was this in high school or college? This was high school. 
So you started young. Uh, let's see, uh, 15 or 16. Yeah, I think I was just turning 16 when I started computers. Wow. So, I mean, we're all familiar with the disability services group at colleges. Your high school actually provided a reader so you could take a computer course? Well, it was pretty much like that. The high school provided a resource room which had people and resources in it. But um, my very first readers, if I remember correctly, were students in the class that my same teacher that I just mentioned assigned to help me. And when I had my Pascal class the second year, my senior year, uh, I did have teachers that were reading to me that, that were people from the special ed uh, resource room, if I remember correctly. Boy, that just sounds like a plum assignment. You know, any student assigned to help you write your homework could just copy it as their own. Well, usually, uh, like I said, that part didn't last very long, so that didn't really have a chance to happen. Uh, when I was in college, I had readers, but they didn't happen to be from my class usually, because sometimes I did and sometimes didn't have access to talking computers in college. I didn't have my own computer to work with in college until I'd been there a couple of years. Uh, so sometimes they did have student readers in college, but they weren't part of my class. What I think is interesting about your story is often you hear about people who are different, particularly in middle school or high school, they wind up getting ostracized, teased, excluded. But it sounds like you had very friendly colleagues and other students to work with and very supportive teachers as you went along. Well, I would say I, uh, not, not always for good, but I kind of avoided the problem of being ostracized by being invisible. Um, I was probably a good case of nerd. I didn't do, I was very shy, so I didn't do a lot of social interaction. Uh, the couple of students I got as readers were, uh, you know, just, just in my class and were asked to do it and they did it. But I really didn't interact as much with uh, some of the students as a couple of my teachers, including from that resource room I mentioned, really wanted me to. Oh, interesting. When you got to college then, did you major in computer science? Absolutely. And it sounded like access to a computer was somewhat of a problem even in college for a little bit because you said you didn't have your own computer. I don't know what you were using for a screen reader. In college, <laughs> quite an assortment. Let's see. Uh, Rehab Center had a computer that talked that uh, had very limited hours. So I used that when I could. I had a friend who got his own computer. I'd go over to his house, and a couple times I was found programming 4 o'clock in the morning in his house while he was asleep, in his dorm, rather. Uh, sometimes I'd walk down the hall in my dorm and say, hey, Dave, can I work on your little Commodore, and can you read the screen, please? Uh, <laughs> so there were lots of lots of variations like that. You you basically figure out how to get it done. You figure out what your resources are and you do it. Well, you must have been very well organized then to be able to schedule using all these computers and people to assist you with your tasks. And I suppose being a good organizer is one of the skills that's real important in programming. It is in a lot of ways. Uh, what I would say, to be completely honest about it, is what I organized is the code itself. I didn't necessarily have a good scheduled planner calendar for organizing meetings, what I would do is I would write my code on a tape. And I'd take the tape recorder with, with headphones and even sometimes a foot pedal into wherever I found a computer and just sit down and go. So I, and I would bring discs. So it wasn't about, can I work with you Friday night? It's, are you available now? If you are, I've got everything I need. And I'm coming in and doing it now. Oh, interesting. 
And how about the rest of college? Did you have any other obstacles to overcome in the rest of your classes? It sounded like you handled your computer classes okay. Well, it was always fun to find the current version of a book. Um, that's probably a continuing problem now. But in those days, we had print books that uh, professors like to new, use the, the latest and greatest version. So on one occasion, I walk into a math class and she says, I just found out that this is the latest edition of the book and it just came out, which meant that my recording for the blind before it became dyslexic uh, was not current. And so it was always interesting to map between what they had and what I had. And I'd call the professors directly and I'd say, in this edition, do you have any way of telling me whether there's a mapping between your chapters and my chapters so I don't have to get everybody, somebody to read as much material? I can just use what was already here. Yeah, that was difficult. Even if you could get the same book, they were often different editions and that could lead to some interesting issues. Well, you used books from Recordings for the Blind and then Dyslexic and now Learning Ally when you were in graduate school, Pete. Did you run into similar problems? Actually, my first problem in graduate school was I actually lost most of my vision just before starting graduate school. And so the summer before, I had uh, Recording for the Blind record my books, but they didn't become available for the first semester. So I actually had my graduate school colleagues reading quantum mechanics books to me and math books. And they all thought, oh, this will be easy until you find out how difficult it is to read mathematics and keep reading for half an hour without your throat getting dry. (laughs) But it worked out. So what happened when you left college? You probably wanted to get a job. What was your thoughts? Well, the first thing that happened after college might have been encouraged by something that happened during college. I got hired by AT&T Bell Labs twice for summer programs, and I think that got some attention. I actually worked there for, for 10 weeks each of two summers in 86 and 87, but I didn't graduate until 92 because I went through a training program, and it took me a while to get the funding for that. Uh, but after, right after I graduated, one of the same friend who got me into computer science classes in co- high school actually got me a job in his company. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, those internship programs are great. I think more colleges ought to not only offer them to students, but ought to require them because really that's what they ought to be training you for, how to get a job and be efficient in the working world. And this also gives you some experience to figure out whether you like your chosen field or not. And you can also make some connections, get your foot in the door. And even within a field, not only whether you like it, but what you like about it, what you don't like about it, and what you can handle about it if you work at it. Because I had, I'm guaranteeing you, I had at least those categories, those two years that I worked in, in Bell Labs. Uh, they wanted me to program, but there were lots of elements, as with any job, that go beyond you don't just sit down and write code. You have a lot of other things you have to deal with, one of which very quickly was what they called view graphs. I think we now call them transparencies or slides. I was required to make a presentation of visual view, including visual view graphs as an exit interview type of thing to the entire department. And uh, so I had to work out how to do that as a blind person. And that was not something I thought I was going to be doing when I got there, but it falls into the I can handle it if I have to category. And what was your trick for dealing with that? I had my tricks. I labeled the plastic with Braille because if you put it on the edge, you actually can Braille on the plastic. And so I labeled them directly. And, of course, then I put sheets between them so they didn't stick together and stuff like that, just actual paper. That did give rise to a funny story. When I was there uh, doing a, the beginning of my, my thing, after I did the rehearsal and everything, I was nervous, of course. And so I put the first page on there. Well, I put the page on there, but the page I put on there was one of those blank sheets that separates all the transparency slides. 
can't quite undo that. But everything went just fine after that. <laughs> <laughs> so my trick was to put a number, a Braille number, at the bottom of each slide. Because with Braille, you couldn't fit a whole lot of text. And then on little index cards, I would have several lines that told me what was on the slide as a kind of a memory thing. And every once in a while, someone wouldn't realize I was blind giving a presentation, but they'd ask afterwards why I was fumbling with some blank index cards in my hand because they didn't see the Braille. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But that worked. So what actually was your first job? Well, it depends on how you define it. The first job I had that was paid was to write a small or to start writing a small inventory management program for the school district I was working in. But that was a test, sort of a temporary job that was a kind of a a pilot, if you will. Uh, My first job that was of any more level of officiality was my first year at Bell Labs in 86. And if you mean the first job I had after I got out of college, this is ironic. I was a programmer for a company called MetroVision Inc. But MetroVision had absolutely nothing to do with blindness or accessibility. It was just the name he assigned a company that wrote database applications for membership organizations. And uh, the biggest program we did was something to manage the school lunch program funding and uh, IDs and pictures and stuff like that. So you said your first programming class was basic. Your second one was Pascal. Then you had a couple of internships. Now a real job. What programming languages have you worked in over the years? Let's see. In order from without going too far down the rabbit hole, I guess Apple Basic and assembly language because I started learning uh, machine code before I even had an assembler uh, in in that class, which got my teacher's attention again. Uh, Pascal. C, that's what I used at Bell Labs, a couple of other assemblies. I had to use Fortran for numerical analysis class. Uh, there would have been some interim languages in there, like APL, because I wrote an APL interpreter for a software engineering class. More recently, I've done, well, I like Python now a lot. I, I wrote a lot of Perl before that. There have been, I'm sure, a few in between that I'm forgetting right now. Uh, I have written some JavaScript, some VB script, of course, a lot of JavaScript, but there's there's probably a number of them I'm forgetting. So I thought I had gone through a lot of programming languages. You've gone through many more, but I'm guessing that your experience is the same as mine. Once you develop the logical structure in your head, what language it is is almost a side issue, that it gets easier and easier to learn the next language after you've already learned a progressively large number. You kind of get to where you want to, you want to say to somebody, okay, give me a reference manual, give me a syntax description, give me a function list, what the rules are for what you can do, what the operators are for math, whatever. It's not the same as learning a new language like you would learn uh, Spanish or Portuguese or whatever, where everything is different all the time. There's a lot of common elements between programming languages. What I think is interesting, if you think of learning coding in the old days, you might have picked up a book. I mean, when I learned C, I got Kerning and Ritchie's book on programming C in Braille from the National Braille Press. Yes. But these days, when I want to learn a new language, I often just go to Google and you can find out about the syntax, the functions, and often find some template codes that can quickly get you started. You do find a lot of that. Now, alongside with your work as an employee at Level Access and the programming you do there, 
when I first came across your name, and probably other people did too, it was many years ago, you provide a lot of JAWS scripts to make common programs a little bit more usable by people using JAWS. Can you talk about some of those activities? You actually put together some tools that make it easier for other people to script too. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was most known for Skype scripts initially. Now there's lots of projects. I think I've gotten over 25 now that are public projects. But at some point, and it was actually middle, early middle 2003, uh, I cobbled together a bunch of stuff that I started calling BX. And BX is a testing tool for scripters. It is, it is sometimes used for other purposes, uh, such as testing websites and whatnot. But for the most part, it's not designed for that. It's designed to help me figure out as I usually describe it, everything I can get to in an application. So it allows me to ask the application every possible question that JAWS could, could see an answer to. And this ties into something I'm just going to say really quick, which is my description of how to be a good scripter involves knowing absolutely everything you can ask and how to find out what works the best over a long period of time. And that's what BX is there to help me do. And you offer many of these scripts for free on your website. I do. And I get some questions that say, you know, people saying, don't you believe in making money? And I said, well, I believe in money being made by the fact that I'm doing people good and they, they, they want it to be that way. Uh, I think of money as a side effect of doing something well. And that's worked out pretty well for me so far, happily. But I don't have a problem with people charging money for what they do. So people who charge for scripts do not make me think bad of them at all. Uh, I am in the luxurious position of not having to do that all the time at the moment. So I do have a lot of free projects, but that's I do also make money scripting professionally. Well, in fact, that's kind of how I recently ran into you about a year ago when I was asking questions about why JAWS wasn't working with this MuseScore application, an application for creating musical scores digitally. And... You got involved and put some scripts together and helped one of the developers put some scripts together that now make that program accessible with JAWS. Well, and that's one of the few times I haven't had very many collaborative scripting experiences for various reasons. That's one of the times when I, I actually had, had a, a occasion to contribute to an existing project, and I think it worked out pretty well. And I'm happy that I managed to do that, and I, I think that it, it will have benefited a lot of people. That's one of the things about that, though, is MuseScore was uh, something of high interest to me, but not something I know a lot about. I took some computer music classes. I even learned Braille music when I was a kid, but I don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't, I, I'm not an expert on the field of that program, and, and uh, there I think people that were much better at that that were involved, and that kind of makes it work. Yeah, it was new to me also. So do you play music or write music? I call it practice dabbling. I have a keyboard, but I'm not a good one anymore. You play mostly for fun for yourself then. You don't play with a group. Yes. Well, music can be fun either way. Yeah. My guitar got me through graduate school, and later in life I learned jazz and had a jazz trio in Rochester, which was a lot of fun. But it wasn't going to pay the bills. As the guitar player in the group said, it's a good thing we retired because there are tens of dollars to be made in music. Which Rochester? Rochester, New York. Yeah, we actually met working in the, the Xerox Research Center in Rochester. Oh. We were both physicists there. I did a lot of computer modeling when I started out, and then, believe it or not, got into image processing later in my career, and Nancy did very similar things. It was a lot of fun. As I tell people, I played mathematical games when I was a kid, and then 
someone paid me to do it when I was older. See, that's something I believe in. If you can find a way to get paid for what you're going to do when nobody tells you what to do, you're doing good. <laughs> Doug mentioned Muse score, and that's what we'll be talking about next week. So you mentioned your website, and you've got a number of scripts on your website. Can you describe what else is on your website and, and some of the more popular scripts that you have there? Well, without looking right now, and I'm not actually at a keyboard, I can tell you that Skype is still there. Um, but I've also done uh, TeamTalk, TeamSpeak, Unigram, which is a accessible telegram for Windows, Teams, Slack. Anybody knows any of these are going to start noticing a pattern here? They're all chat programs. One of my specialties over the years has been, been writing scripts for chat programs of various kinds. Um, because that's a case that you usually want to be able to be very fast. And fast usually means we want better than just accessible. We want efficiently usable. Well, thank you for all the work you do and the tools that you distribute to people using JAWS in their everyday lives. Thank you very much. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about some of the work that Doug's been involved in and how to contact him directly. Doug, if people wanted to look at some of the tools you have available on your website or connect with you, how would they go about that? Well, my website is www.dlee, which is my first initial and last name, D-L-E-E dot O-R-G. As for contacting, that gets a little tricky because things are changing a bit right now. Uh, so you can look at my projects on Telegram, and there's this discussion group that people can go into about my projects there from the channel. So I have a Telegram channel, which is Dealey underscore code. If you're on Telegram, you can, I think, find it that way. Uh, and I think the show notes will have a link to it that will go straight there. That's also copied over to Twitter. I'm not as active on Twitter, but I have a Dealey underscore code there also that I use for support sometimes. I'm just not always active on Twitter. Uh, I am also finally in Skype as Dealey42. I've been in there forever. And what is the significance of the 42? That is a Douglas Adams reference for anybody who likes Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm sure you already suspected this. Oh, yes. yes. We did. We are fans. You said you actually are employed by Level Access that, that helps provide accessibility to people with multiple different disabilities. How would people contact them? The website for Level Access is www.levelaccess.com. They do have a contact page. And as usual, we'll have all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. So check it out. That's it for show number 2130. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the MuseScore music scoring software program. MuseScore is a program that you can use to create and share musical scores. Despite being open source and free, MuseScore includes many of the features found in commercial programs. We'll talk with Mark Sabatella, one of its developers, about his work to make MuseScore accessible with a variety of screen readers. And you'll hear a story about how, coincidentally, that came to work with JAWS. So check us next week for that episode. 
You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.